Welcome to Carry the Light. I'm your host, Carrie Alexander. During your time here, we'll explore all things positive to brighten up your day and light up the world around you. We'll talk to regular folks about doing extraordinary things, hear fantastic stories, get a little creative in the world of happiness, and learn how you can change the world. Now sit back and relax. Let's carry the light. Education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Nelson Mandela. We've all heard the saying, knowledge is power. It opens doors to opportunities, interests, talents, solutions, and may even unlock our own hidden potential. A great teacher has been known to change the course of their students' lives with motivation and skill. Today on Carry the Light, we are going to talk to one of those change makers. Matt Dolan isn't a teacher. He's an educational entrepreneur. Once he discovered the educational discrepancies facing kids in rural America, he came up with the idea of using tech to bring Ivy League professors to the poorest classrooms in America. He founded the Global Teaching Project to help expose young talent in rural areas to these top-notch instructors and advanced curriculum. He's seen dramatic results. We'll find out more about his equation for success next on Carry the Light. Welcome back. I grew up in rural Kentucky. I had great teachers who were invested in me. So even though I wasn't exposed to museums, very many career options, or the digital world, yes, I'm that old, I was lucky. I was the first in my family to go to college, but I had parents who encouraged me to do so. And again, I had great teachers. I know that's not the case for a lot of people in rural areas. Kids raised in these places have a difficult time finding or going to an after-school program. I never knew there was such a thing as a tutor. And frankly, we're just more spread out geographically. That can sometimes lead to difficulty attracting good teachers and less opportunities. Matt Dolan, founder of the Global Teaching Project, joins us now to talk about why he got involved and what results he's seen in places like rural Mississippi. Hi, Matt. Hi, Carrie. How are you today? I am wonderful. Thank you for joining us in this early 2022. It's hard to believe we've got already a new year amongst us. But we are here today to talk about your global teaching project. First of all, Matt, what made you decide to found this project? What was your inspiration? Why tackle this problem? Well, I, I often say that I need to come up with a better origin story because, it, you know, you watch... Marvel movies, superhero movies, uh, there's some great epiphany, there's some very dramatic backstory. The, the fact is, it really was simply a matter of deciding to do this and doing it. The impetus really was as simple as my wife and I had uh, raised four children. We did our very best to provide those children the best opportunities they had could, could get in terms of quality instruction, quality schools. And but we were mindful not that not everyone had those those opportunities. And it was something that we wanted to make sure we did what we could to provide opportunities for other folks that we insisted upon for our own kids. It, it really was that simple. The wrinkle, perhaps, is how we came to focus on rural areas. I am not unlike you. 
I did not grow up in a rural area. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I went to school on the East Coast where in relatively urban areas. But as we began to focus on where we really could make a difference, where we really could move the needle, I had long been involved uh, in a volunteer capacity for center city education. We had some insights about, through personal experience and, and other things, about uh, advanced secondary high school, that is, education. But as we began to look uh, into where could we take on a particular issue and really make a difference, it became evident to us quite quickly that the greatest unmet needs out there were in rural areas, and particularly rural high poverty areas, and most of all, uh, rural high poverty areas where there was, they were afflicted by very severe teacher shortages, which were most evident at the, the highest levels and the most rigorous courses where these rural areas simply cannot get capable teachers. And when you decided to do this, I mean, you went high level. I mean, you went in, you're bringing in Ivy League educated professors and tutors. And I mean, you're, you are trying to work with the best of the best when you go into these schools, how was that received and, and how were you able to put this together? What kind of reception did you get from the instructor you know, point of view? Well, just about everybody was quite receptive. There have been many, many issues we've had to face. One of them have, has not been the receptivity of either the instructors or the schools. I think the instructors at, at some of the schools you're talking about, both professors and also uh, we rely very heavily on tutors from, from prominent schools. The biggest sources of tutors for us are Yale, University of Virginia, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, Georgia Tech, and, and schools of that caliber. They were quite interested in doing it. And, and frankly, there was sort of an unmet demand to go out and try to be helpful. And on the, the learning side, on the student side, Frankly, a lot of our students were rather inattentive to where the teachers were from, where the tutors were from, where the content was generated. They tended not to be particularly familiar with these schools, and so they weren't particularly intimidated by them. All they knew is that these were smart, capable people who cared about the students, and they responded. The names of the institutions uh, associated with these teachers and tutors really and this is, I view, generally as a good thing, really had modest impact on the, the, the people we're serving. That's amazing because, you know, that's usually when people invest in private educations for their kids. They're hoping to have, you know, instructors, you know, that have a pedigree such as the ones that you are bringing into these areas. And that's what people, most people are striving for, for their kids is to go to these prominent schools. But yes, you're in an area where it's probably not even a thought, you know, because they haven't been like, you know, as for me, I knew I wanted to go to college, but I had no thoughts of, you know, what schools were better than others. I was just going to get in the best state school I could get into. And that's all I pretty much knew. And I can't imagine, you know, even, you know, other areas that are more spread out. And, and again, as I referenced before, I had great teachers who were invested in what they were doing. So from my understanding and talking with you too, one of the biggest deficits 
seem to be in higher level classes such as your sciences and maybe mathematics, what physics, chemistry classes, calculuses, you know, teachers, are those where you're seeing the areas in these high schools, I guess the gaps you're trying to fill? They are. They are. But one of the very first meetings we had when we started this, the way it worked, uh, the communities we serve, the social dynamics are such that there really is no substitute for meeting people in person. The, the paradox is that the logistics and other considerations make meeting with those people extraordinarily difficult. So generally these communities are overlooked. But one of the very first meetings I had for this was with the superintendent, I still recall saying, you know, we have a number of programs in place for students who are struggling, students who really don't know where even to begin. But she said, but we have nothing for our, our most capable students. They exhaust the curriculum. We do not have the means to teach them. Uh, we do not have the qualified teachers. And that teacher shortage, which is a chronic pro shortage, it is getting worse every day. It was a, a rather grim picture and a grim outlook before COVID. It has gotten much worse as a consequence. But those teacher shortages are most evident as you, as you note, in upper-level STEM, our inaugural course was AP Physics. We have since expanded to AP Computer Science, AP Biology. And all these are courses that if you are in a rural area, and particularly a rural high-poverty area, and our focus is on rural high-poverty communities, unless there is some extraordinarily extraordinary stroke of luck, you're never going to get those teachers. I've been told that, you know, it is more likely that a unicorn will stroll into the <laughs> lobby of one of these schools than, than a, a, a AP physics certified teacher. It just doesn't happen. And the teachers just aren't there. So how do you do it? How do you bring in these teachers into the classroom? Is it is it by Zoom? Do you have someone there who also uh, in person helps to facilitate? How does your curriculum work? Well, uh, thank you for the question. It really, well, I'll tell you what we are not, and this is a common misconception. We are not an online course. We are a blended course. We have many different ways to engage the students, and we very much want to work with the schools and with the faculties at these schools, we do not simply want to give them a video feed. Obviously, during COVID, that required greater reliance on remote instruction, which is, uh, you know, particularly when schools were physically closed, as some of our schools were closed for literally 17 months. But we, we have a number of components to it. First, we do have uh, asynchronous video, which is basically a fancy word for way of referring to videos. We have a great deal of Zoom synchronous videos, which means that it's an opportunity for live tutoring back and forth. But we also have in every one of our classes, whenever possible, which is in almost every one, we have a teacher in the classroom. And so the way it works is we may not have an AP certified physics teacher, for example, but we have a teacher who has some skills who has some math foundation and also is a very good classroom manager. 
it is a class during the day. It is not an extracurricular activity. It is not a weekend program. It is a class. So we provide a blended range of resources. We have, we work through the teachers. We provide the teachers with lesson plans. We provide videos to them that have uh, substantive instruction. Typically twice a week, we have these tutors from, again, these prominent schools, college STEM majors, and not just college STEM majors, but quite literally some of the best college students in the country working with these students, typically twice a week by Zoom. We do training for the teachers. One of the, the what I view as the most consequential successes we've had is we've had uh, quite a few teachers become AP certified after working with our program, which is, you know, I often say that the best possible outcome for our program is we become superfluous. We would be delighted if there was not a need for what we do. We provide university-based residential programs throughout the year. We have a major program for our Mississippi students at Mississippi State University every summer because our students all are bright, but some of them have pretty significant gaps in their substantive foundation. So we work with them over the summer to try and fill in those gaps. We have episodic programs during the school year, again, at universities. We have a, a program coming up and, and obviously greatly complicated by COVID. But over Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we will have a program run concurrently at four universities for our students uh, for about 50 classes at four universities uh, that basically reinforces some of the lessons they're, they're learning. And significantly, and again, unfortunately, COVID impedes this dynamic a little bit. But what we also do is we have these not just for instructional purposes, but we bring talented, smart, ambitious, driven students from these very remote rural areas. We bring them physically together to let them know there's other students like them. They are not alone. There there are peers to whom they can relate. There are peers who they can enjoy their company. They can challenge one another. They can learn together. And we do that. We provide a whole range of resources, textbooks, workbooks, Chromebooks, very significant online resources. And we bring all of these elements together. And together, we try to provide the supports that these students and these teachers need. Well, I think that's fantastic, you know, letting them know that they're not alone. Uh, You know, as you were talking, again, you know, I identify with the state of Kentucky, where I'm from. And I think a lot about about Eastern Kentucky and like the book Hillbilly Elegy and, you know, what it was like for him when he went to Yale for the first time and he's around these other students and he doesn't know what sparkling water is. He just thinks it's a nicer form of water, you know, and things like that and, and how he felt during that time that there was nobody else like him. So I think finding that common commonality has got to be supportive for them, even as they advance in school. Now, recently we talked, uh, you and I talked offline a little bit. You just had a student admitted into MIT, which is uh, incredibly impressive. Where are the kids going to college? What kind of success have you found in your five years so far of the program? Well, uh, yes, that that was a a wonderful success and a, a success. And I'm delighted to say this, that we had little to do with. I mean, this was a very talented kid. He had talents before we ever showed up, but we just are helping 
him to put him in a position that he can go and succeed at a place like MIT. Now, we tend not to view our successes in based on where the students go. It's more what they do and the fact they go somewhere. The great majority of our kids go to school in-state. Quite often for financial purposes, they first go to community college and then transfer to to four-year colleges. Almost every one of our kids goes to college. And again, one thing I I never try to do is claim that we are responsible for more than, than we are responsible for. The fact is we teach talented kids. They are kids who may not have had a lot of high-level instruction, but these are smart kids. And my guess is that in the great majority of cases, they were going to go to college in any event or they were going to try. What we believe we are helping on is that when they get to college, they can succeed. When they get to college, they're willing to take more rigorous courses. They are willing to take more challenging majors. They are more likely to persist as the the term goes, which is the the standard metric for that is six-year graduation rates. Uh, How many graduate with a a bachelor's degree within six years of graduating high school? I think that's where our success, where, where our impact is most consequential. The fact that they go to college, they stay in college, they succeed in college. In fact, most of them, uh, you know, we, we do have some kids go to schools that are highly selective, and that's wonderful. But we're every bit as proud of the, the kids who go to the community college, as we were talking a moment ago, that two kids who comes to mind among the kids we've worked with most recently, of whom we're particularly proud. One is in community college. He's been very successful. I have no doubt he's going to be very successful. And his plans are he's going to be there for two years. He's going to transfer to one of the major state universities and has sort of a, a, a program in mind. And then there's the one at MIT. And I, in my view, they're both doing great. Well, so I'm curious because I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I had to figure out the whole process, the application process myself. We didn't have like really a strong college counseling you know, department at my school. So I just kind of navigated the whole thing you know, individually trying to figure it all out. So is that, and that can be really intimidating to a lot of students. They don't know where to start, how to do it, where to apply, what they should do. Do you help them with that as well? How do you get your, your students onto the next level? How do you do that transition? How do you help them decide where they're going? Well, like with, with many things, technology has certainly uh, been a big help. And what we do, I mentioned our summer program at Mississippi State University each summer. One of the things we do for every student who attends that program, we have sessions in the evening. And again, we have our college STEM major tutors there, people who are uh, just went through the college application process themselves quite recently, quite successfully. Most of them do go to, to quite selective schools. But every single student in our summer program we have them create a common application account for themselves. And the common app, and I'd have to look at the website, it's, it's uh, last time I checked, about a thousand schools accept the common application. Most of those schools uh, accept the common application without any supplements. Some of the more selected schools require some modest supplements. But if you can create a college common app account, 
And then you start doing the screens and we go through the screens with them. They, and the screens meaning you identify criteria that you're interested in. Do you want a big school? Do you want a small school? Do you want a uh, sectarian school? Do you want a, a public school? Do you want liberal arts? Do you want a more technology focused? Do you want to be in a city? Do you want to be in the country? But we work through those screens not to direct them to a specific school, but to encourage them to think about what they want to do. Because really what our program comes down to is encouraging our students to think about what they're going to do and to begin to work towards a goal. Now, we advise them that goal almost certainly is going to change, and that's fine. But the important thing is to begin to prepare yourself and to drive and to move forward. But that's how we do it. We, we literally sit in a room with them and have them create these applications that they can adapt and submit to, to whatever schools among these thousand uh, schools use the Common App. Well, it sounds like you're creating a lot of fantastic opportunities with a lot of very driven, motivated, and intelligent kids, and it's a perfect combination. So if people wanted to learn more about your project, your program, what you're doing, like either to be supportive of it or to find out more information about you know, bringing it to their area, how can they find out more? Well, certainly the place to start would be our website, which is just globalteachingproject.com. And you go to our blog. We have a lot of stories about our students. We have a lot of things that talk about our speakers. We bring in remarkable speakers. We've had a recent Nobel Prize winning physicist speak to our students. The head of epidemiology at Harvard Medical School speak to our students. We've had prominent entrepreneurs speak to our students. So that is the best place. And we try and lay out with specificity. And also, and I'm sort of a data guy, I'm a history major, but I'm a data guy. We try to lay out some of the metrics by which we sort of guide our work, that we assess our work. And uh, all of that is, is, uh, is there for anyone to take a look at on, on our website. And also, Matt, before I let you go, what is your goal? What is your dream for the Global Teaching Project? Well, as I say, my, my fantasy, which will never come to pass, is that we become obsolete, that, that the need we seek to address uh, goes away. My more realistic goal is that we address that need more effectively, that we scale what we do. One of the things we work very hard to do is to develop a template that can be scaled. We have grown considerably in the few years we've been doing this. We hope to grow considerably more. Again, technology does permit us to scale this somewhat. And basically, our notion would be if we could be a material part of the solution for a kid who is in rural Mississippi, which is, is where we uh, have done our initial work, or eastern Kentucky, or a reservation in uh, south central South Dakota, or the Iron Range in Minnesota, that, that And if they're a smart kid and they want to learn and they want to get ahead, that we would provide them with the tools to do so. And uh, that is really what we aspire to do. Well, I think it's a wonderful goal and I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to hearing all your successes along the way. And I have to say, you really do have impressive speakers. I'm, I'm constantly looking at the list and a little jealous from time to time <laughs> on the well, exposure there, that they you have. Know, there's a lot of good people who have taken an interest in, in this work. 
we actually have some coming up as well. We, we have a Pulitzer Prize winning historian who we're hoping to have speak uh, later this month. So yes, we try to broaden the horizons of our students, not just by, by teaching them, but exposing them to the, the world beyond the rural communities in which they live. Yeah, and actually lots of different career choices and how everything applies to the real world. I think it's amazing what you're doing. So uh, keep up the great work and thank you for joining us today, Matt. Okay, thank you very much, Carrie. Well, stay with us. We've got tips on how to motivate your teen to do better in school. The do's and don'ts are up next on Carry the Light. Okay, motivating a teenager to do their schoolwork can be extraordinarily hard. We've all been there. So to help out, I pulled some tips to help out parents. This information comes from Daniel Wong's book, 16 Keys to Motivating Your Teenager. First, let's start with the what not to do. Don't annoy your children. According to Wong, they won't listen to you if you're constantly at odds or if your comments suggest that they just aren't good enough. Also avoid the when I was your age speech or comparing them to their siblings. They just get stressed, don't feel good enough, and give up. Don't use rewards, punishments, or threats. Research shows it teaches your kid that you love them for what they do and not for who they are. Plus, they may get short-term results, but it doesn't address why they aren't motivated. Don't try to control them. Too much hovering takes away their development of independence or responsibility. Don't obsess on the results. Instead, focus on the process, like study skills or what they're learning instead of the grade. Don't reduce your child to a problem that needs to be solved. Talk to them about their feelings about the situation or what opinions they may have. Sometimes they just need to be understood or they may become defiant. I think I've done every single one of those what not to do's, but let's switch over to what to do. Develop routines and structure. Equip your child with planning and organizational skills. Try breaking down bigger tasks into smaller ones. Create lists that they can mark off. Otherwise, they can get overwhelmed and just want to escape back into the video games. Create a family culture where it is okay to make mistakes. Wong cites a study by Stanford University that shows that children who are praised for their effort work harder and give up less easily. Show an interest in all aspects of your child's life. Encourage them to join clubs, participate in sports, or just have friends over. Help your children to find a mentor. A mentor could be a coach, teacher, friend, family member, or coworker. These are just a few tips from Wong's book. Don't forget to check it out. Again, it was Daniel Wong's book entitled 16 Keys to Motivating Your Teenager. I know I can use all the help I could get. And speaking of help, it's now time for a moment of light. Just recently, I saw the cutest story out of Arkansas. The little boy there had spent most of the pandemic growing out a mullet to win the USA Mullet Championship. Did he do it for bragging rights or maybe for style? No, the 11-year-old did it to raise awareness and donate the prize money to help foster kids. 
As a foster kid himself, he was adopted, so he knows firsthand the difficulties these kids face and wanted to give back. So Alan Blotz took his $2,500 and donated it to Project Zero in hopes of lighting up the world for foster kids in his home state. Congratulations, Alan. And from this Kentucky native, you really know how to rock a mullet. Have a great week and remember to carry the light. For more information on how you can carry the light, follow us on Instagram at carrythelight underscore now or check out our website, carrythelight.com. I'd love to hear from you.